If you have a Bible, we're going um, to be looking at John chapter 2 this morning and the story of the wedding at Cana and the water to wine miracle. And so um, in keeping with the wedding theme, and since you've never met me, uh, I thought I'd tell you a story to maybe break the ice, a story about my own wedding. Um, as you can tell, uh, I'm, I have a baby face, I have my whole life. And uh, the baby face came to, came to bite me, came back to bite me at my wedding. Um, so it's that time of the wedding where everybody's going to do the wedding toasts. And the wedding coordinator came up and she, she said, Cody, you know, why don't you go grab something to drink uh, and get ready for this? So everybody else, all the guests are in line waiting to get their glass of wine or whatever beverage of choice. Uh, but I'm the groom, and so I got to skip ahead of everybody in line. And I uh, walked up to the bartender, and I said, could I please have a glass of the wine uh, for the toast? And he stopped, and he looked me up and down, and he said, um, I'm going to need to see your ID. <laughs> I turned and I looked at all the wedding guests, just kind of like, whoa, man, that's awkward. Uh, baby face strikes again. It was an awkward moment and a little bit of an embarrassing moment since I had bought all of the wine. But um, <laughs> anyway, we're coming this morning to a wedding where the groom is about to get embarrassed. Lucky for him, Jesus is there. Jesus really loves weddings, as we're going to see in just a minute. Um, and because Jesus is there, he's going to step in and intervene. And as we watch this story unfold, we're going to learn something about the person of Jesus. We're going to see him exercise his authority over creation, right? His divine power, his ability to literally, and I'm using literally, literally, not the way we do figuratively, literally turn water into wine. But I also want us to see that in this story, we see revealed what Jesus is like. And more than that, we see uh, Jesus's loves and, and like you've heard the question asked, when you can think about anything, what are you thinking about? We, we sort of, I think, catch a glimpse of that here. When Jesus can think about anything, what is he thinking about? And what does that tell us about what he's like? So John chapter two, starting in verse one, please read with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw out some, or draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine 
until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that it can be hard um, to believe that you are flesh and blood. Um, and so uh, I pray, Lord, for eyes of faith, fresh eyes to see you as you truly are. Uh, eyes of faith, uh, faith that, that will um, grow to love you in response to, to what you're like and to the, to the great love that you've showed to us. Would you do that, Jesus, for our good and for your glory? Amen. If you fast forward to the end of John's gospel, he tells you and, and I why he wrote it. He said that um, there are all sorts of other things that Jesus did, works and miracles that are not recorded in this book. But what is written, what he chose to write, he wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, so what John is saying to his audience, his original Jewish audience probably, is this. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. He's the one who's going to be the fulfillment of all of the promises of God for you. He's the one you've so long looked for. And every story in this gospel advances that goal of showing us something of the personality, the character, the authority, the power of Jesus as God's promised Christ. And throughout his gospel, he, he gives us seven signs that sort of structure, they form the backbone of the gospel, seven miracles or seven things that Jesus does to demonstrate his identity as God's son. And as we come to this passage, this is the first of those signs. And what's remarkable about this story is where it takes place. Remember, uh, we're we're looking at this question, who is Jesus as the Son of God, as God's chosen Messiah? And the first time Jesus in John's gospel manifests his glory and exercises his power is at a really unremarkable place. Jesus is in Cana in Galilee. This is somewhere close to his hometown. It's about 100 miles from Jerusalem, right? A long way away from the action. And... Who got married? Well, John doesn't tell us. So what, what this says to us is something really important. And that is that Jesus as the son of God, as he decided, how am I going to spend my time on earth? My very limited time on earth. If you are the savior of the world and you're going to make a plan for how to redeem it, this is probably not the place you would choose to go. But as the savior of the world, he knows deeply and intimately what it's like to go to a wedding. Now, Mary is there. She seems to be functioning as like a wedding coordinator, which suggests that maybe this is a, like a cousin of Jesus that's getting married, a close personal friend, right? Mary is taking ownership of the wedding. And so Jesus is going to manifest his glory at his cousin's wedding for the first time. Uh, I took my wife on our first date uh, to my cousin's wedding because I'm a romantic guy. Um, and so she, uh, she, she can sympathize here with Jesus, right? Like Jesus knows what it's like to go to a no-name wedding because his mom made him. 
at some point during this wedding, Mary comes up to Jesus with some really bad news. They're out of wine. Now, um, I, I have to confess that reading this story growing up, and even as a seminary-trained pastor, my initial response to this as a kid who, as a guy who grew up in Texas, is to feel like Mary is overreacting, right? Like they ran out of wine. She didn't, you know, it was like, who cares? In Texas, I grew up a Southern Baptist, like we don't even have wine at weddings. So to run out or to have none is just really not that big of a deal. I was having a conversation uh, about a year ago with little more than a year ago with an Italian woman. Um, and we were talking about this passage. It was kind of a counseling situation. And I, I mentioned that like, this really seems like an overreaction on Mary's part. Um, and her response was, are you crazy? <laughs> to an Italian woman running out of wine, this was catastrophic, right? This is like this is, a, this is an emergency situation. And so in the course of that conversation, I began to realize, okay, Cody, uh, Texas kid, uh, there are cultural things happening here that you don't quite get. You're not understanding why Mary is so alarmed. And I was listening to a sermon uh, recently where a pastor said that maybe a good analogy for us to better understand what's happening here is this. Imagine that you're at a rehearsal dinner. And everybody's eating and drinking and the food's great. And I don't know, maybe the Bridgers are in the, in, the, in the background and it's just a wonderful time. And right toward the end of the meal, everybody's getting ready to go home. The server walks in and he says, excuse me, this guy's credit card just got declined. So you've all got to pay for your own food. Right? Like, oh my goodness. Something like that is happening here. And Mary is panicked about it. And so what is Mary's response? Now, this is important because Mary knows Jesus better than we do. And Mary knows that Jesus is going to sympathize with the groom. Now, I don't know what she expected Jesus to do. I don't know if she expected him to turn 150 gallons of water into wine. Maybe Jesus was doing some pretty cool stuff as a kid. I'm not really sure. But she knew that Jesus was going to sympathize, and she knew that Jesus would step in because he loves weddings. And he would turn this disaster into a blessing. She brings this problem to him because she knows what he's like. She knows he'll sympathize with even something as seemingly insignificant as a groom that's just about to get embarrassed in front of his friends and family. As I step onto campus at MSU, and this was the case in Prague as well, I run into students who have this cultural narrative Jesus. Jesus who is mean. Jesus who wants to tell them what not to do. Jesus who wants to keep them from enjoying life, right? Jesus the ascetic. And I love to bring them to this passage because it shows two very different things about Jesus than the, the, the sort of conventional cultural narrative. The, the first is that Jesus, um, Jesus 
can sympathize with you and, and he cares about you and he is compassionate and he is not simply interested in shaming you into submission. And the second is that he throws really great parties, right? He, he, he created this world to be enjoyed and he is not calling us to a joyless, stodgy life. And in response to this need, Jesus steps in. And as he does, we see something of his instincts on display. Now, this interaction between him and Mary is really fascinating because it's mother and son. And she comes to Jesus. She says, they're out of wine. And Jesus seems to be somewhere else. His mind is somewhere else because his response is really strange. He says, woman, which, by the way, don't call your mom woman. I've been told it was a term of respect, but it doesn't translate well into the English. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now that doesn't seem to follow from anything that Mary has just said. What is he talking about? His mind seems to be somewhere else. And so you get this sense that Jesus is just sort of caught off guard by this. He wasn't expecting Mary to come with this problem. And so that's important to keep in mind as you see Jesus' response. This was not scripted. Now, Jesus is the son of God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But he was also human. And there is a very human element here that you just sort of get the sense that he's caught off guard. And so what follows is not a scripted, planned out thing. It seems to be Jesus's off-the-cuff response to need. John tells us that there were these six massive stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, these are the things that Jews would wash up before the meal, make sure that they maintain their purity, their peace with God. And so uh, John tells us that these jars were huge, 20 to 30 gallons. Now, John's a really good storyteller. He gives us that detail on purpose because I think what John wants us to see is the scale of what's about to happen. Jesus is about to turn something like 150, maybe as many as 180 gallons of water into wine. I didn't have that much wine at my wedding. He throws really great parties. We're seeing that Jesus, in response to need, his instinct is to bless with abundance. He doesn't give the groom just enough to get through the night he gives him more than he needs, right? And this goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden when God plants Adam in the garden. And what does he say to him? He says, I've given you every tree bearing fruit. Eat, eat. This is Hebraic way of saying, eat to your heart's content. Eat as much as you possibly can. Enjoy these gifts of my grace. You will never get to the bottom of my blessings that I have created this world for you to enjoy. Eat, eat. And that, that character of God, that willingness and desire to bless with abundance is on full display here. Jesus is about to turn 180 gallons of water into wine. But it isn't just that Jesus gives this groom a lot of wine. He gives this groom the best wine. His instinct is not just to bless with abundance, but to bless with more than we deserve. Now, I love this moment for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love it is that it's so understated and so under the radar. The only people who know what happened to this water 
are the servants. Uh, Jesus has filled them up. And I love this little interaction too, because Mary's like, please do something. And Jesus is like, I don't think so. And she turns to the, to the servers and she's like, he always says that. Just do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Fill them up. And then he says, taste it. Bring the master of the feast over. And then Jesus disappears from the rest of the story. He's out of the picture. He's like off in the corner watching what happens next. The master of the feast comes over and he tastes this wine and he's blown away. Now, I like to uh, imagine him as like a jolly French chef uh, who's apparently unaware that they have no wine. Now, maybe it's his fault. Maybe that's why he's aware. Maybe he's been drinking the wine when he should have been uh, tending to the feast. I don't know. But here he comes over and he's blown away. He's so blown away that he calls the groom over. Now, the groom is confused probably right like he's he, he's kind of fallen down on the job right like he didn't get enough wine for the wedding he's a little insecure here the the, the master of the feast come, calls him over and he says everybody serves the best wine first that's how this game works and then once everybody's had a little bit to drink and they're not quite as aware of what they're drinking then you pull out the franzia right you pull out the boxed wine from costco but you have served the best wine last. You can imagine that the groom is thinking to himself, well, that's kind of what I did. Where did this wine come from? This is not my wine. I didn't, I didn't provide this much wine. This was not me. And so here you have this. Now, this is a gospel picture. John is an amazing storyteller. Here's the scene. The master of the feast, the authority, right, on feasting, calls the groom over and gives him credit for something that Jesus did. Gives him credit for Jesus' wine. And the groom takes the credit. And there's Jesus over in the corner smiling, saying, that's exactly what I had in mind. Right, that's the gospel. We get credit for what Jesus did. And Jesus delights to see us take that credit and stand before our Father with a reputation that we don't deserve. That's the gospel. There are echoes of this gospel all throughout John's gospel, and it's on full display. Jesus delights to give this groom the credit. Dane Ortland wrote a book a couple of years ago during the height of COVID, came out called Gentle and Lowly. And it's really just about what Jesus is like. What would it be like to hang out with him? What's his disposition towards us? And I love what he says. He says, if you catch me off guard, what will, uh, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain my composure will most likely be grouchiness. Now that's me. You can ask my kids at 6.30 in the morning when they come in asking for breakfast. But if you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing. The impulse to do good and the desire to swallow us up in joy. Now that is on full display in this passage. What is leaping out of Jesus is blessing the impulse to do good and the desire to swallow this wedding up with joy. This is the same Jesus. This is the same God of the Old Testament. 
This is the God who gave the Mosaic law, who led his people by fire and cloud, whose voice made Sinai shake. And his instinct is to bless and to swallow us up with joy. And so we're seeing in Jesus not only the authority over creation to turn water into wine and the authority to tell us how to live, but also the mercy and the grace and the gentleness and the desire to bless. What if we believe that? How would that change our pursuit of Jesus, our pursuit of holiness? Now, there was one issue before we finish that we sort of left unaddressed. And that is, where was Jesus' mind when Mary came to him? Why this off-the-wall, non-sequitur response? What was his mind on? What was a hold of his thoughts when Mary came and said, there's no wine, and he said, my hour has not yet come? That phrase, my hour, is a, has a very specific usage in John. It's all over the Gospels, but John has a very specific purpose for that phrase. If you fast forward to the last night of Jesus' life, this long section, John devotes an incredible amount of space to the last night of Jesus' life, where he's washing his disciples' feet. He's telling them, I'm leaving. You're not going to be able to come with me. He does the Last Supper. He dismisses Judas. And then when all of that is finished, in chapter 17, he starts his high priestly prayer. And he starts that prayer by saying this, John writes in 17 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. The hour, the hour has come, my hour has come. You see, the hour that Jesus has in mind is the hour of his suffering. That's what that phrase means in John. It's about Jesus' suffering, his passion, what he would have to do to win his bride for himself. You see, it seems that being at a wedding has Jesus thinking about his own wedding. If you've ever planned a wedding, it's been a while since I planned ours, but you know that the only thing, like always running in the back of your mind, is everything between now and that day, right? I gotta get to save the dates and the invitations, and I've gotta arrange a photographer and the music and the flowers and the food and the venue and the pastor and the, you know, all of that stuff. It's just constantly running in the background. And here we find Jesus at a wedding, thinking about all of the things that have to happen to pull his wedding off. Weddings are significant for John. He wrote Revelation, and at the end of that book, when the new heavens and the new earth come down and the, the kingdom of God is inaugurated for all eternity, it begins with a feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that is imagery that John is drawing on from all the way back in Isaiah. Like this is an Old Testament picture of God's abundant provision for his people, his desire to swallow them up with joy. And we're promised that this new heaven and this new earth will begin with a wedding supper. And Jesus's mind is on that day and everything it will cost him to get there. Now you can imagine all of the things at this wedding that are conspiring to pull Jesus's attention to his own wedding. 
right? You have the, the bride and the groom, this New Testament image that God gives us of the church is the bride of Christ. The, 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 the one that Jesus longs to join himself to forever. You have so many elements of the wedding that are pointing toward this coming wedding day. And how about this? How about just the presence of those stone jars? What would those have drawn Jesus' attention to? You see, you can imagine that when he requisitioned those to his own purposes, that any Jew watching this happen would have been very uncomfortable, right? Because those are the things, these water jars, the ceremony of washing myself, that's how I have peace with God. That's how I maintain my right standing with him. And if you take those, you are putting me at risk, right? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not because I'm here now. And those stone jars were always pointing to me, to the work that I would have to do. You see, because you filled those with jar, those jars with water, I have to fill them with my blood. And that's why this image of filling them with wine is so vivid, right? Because the wine in the New Testament is an image of the blood that was shed for the people of God to give them peace. And so here Jesus is, and he's got these stone jars that he'll have to fill with his better wine. He's calling his mind to the blood that he would have to shed to see his own wedding day. Now, here's the thing. And here's the place where I hope you're, you're encouraged is that if Jesus is thinking about his wedding day, it means he's thinking about your wedding day. If Jesus' mind is on his bride, it means his mind is on you. You are the bride that Jesus is dreaming about. And when we think about a, a wedding and planning a wedding, it's usually the bride, this is the stereotype, it's the bride who's very excited, 